Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 20, where the Holy Scriptures read, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him then over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were both indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we ask that you would help us to see the greatness of Jesus in this text, to see that it is not through asserting our dominance over others, through showing our skill sets that we have, but it comes purely through humility in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would make us humble. Help us not to be prideful. Help us to see the areas of pride in our life that are blind spots, areas which we have asserted our greatness, which we have no right to do. And so, Father, help us to see King Jesus and his greatness today so that we may be forever humbled by his humility, so that we too might be great underneath his shadow. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. He was famous. He was rich. He was powerful. In fact, he was great. His title was actually just that. They actually called him Louis the Great. However, as the story goes, Louis the Great was actually not so great. And why? Because though he was a king who was quite famous, the truth was the people hated and despised him. Though he was rich, he was actually poor when it came to the most basic virtues. He had no compassion and no care for anyone but himself. Though he was powerful, he was powerless to control his vices as his anger, his lust, and his envy would always seem to get the better of him and actually control him, which all served to make Louis the Great not so great. But to be fair, his entire life had sort of set him up to be this way, for King Louis was the 14th king of France, and so ever since he was a baby, he was coddled and cared for, which meant he had never really experienced true suffering, not even a glimpse of suffering. 
And not only that, but all of his life, he had been told how great he was compared to the commoners. In fact, he was of royal blood. And so I'm sure you can see why Louis started to believe that he was so great after all. And coupled with a host of servants who waited upon him hand and foot, he never came to know what it meant to serve somebody else. Nor did he know the meaning of the word sacrifice as he could have anything and anyone, whatever his heart desired, at the drop of a dime. One word from his mouth, and it was his. And so Louis the Great became one of the greatest tyrant kings of all time. However, as legend goes, Louis the Great had a twin brother named Philippe. That's how you got to say it, Philippe who couldn't have been more different than his brother. Well, his brother Louis was famous. Philippe was known by no one. Because on the day that he was born, his father was concerned that there might be rivals in the kingdom over who should be the king. And so he had the younger boy sent away. And so while King Louis grew up in riches, Philippe grew up in rags. While King Louis grew up with absolute power, Philippe grew up powerless as he was imprisoned and forced to wear an iron mask in order to hide his identity from all. However, while King Louis the Great was not so great due to his uncontrolled character, Philippe was actually truly great. For his suffering had led him to be a humble, caring, and kind person. And so when a plot succeeded in finally replacing the tyrant King Louis with his tender-hearted brother Philippe, Philippe exchanged his mask for a crown and then became one of the greatest kings that France had ever known as he went on to humbly and sacrificially serve his people. You know something that's interesting when it comes to true greatness is that when we read of stories like we just told of Alexander Dumas' Man in the Iron Mask, we easily recognize who in that story was great and who in that story wasn't. See, nobody looks at these two twin brothers and they think, man, I wish I could be like Louis. I wish my kid would grow up to be like Louis someday. Wouldn't that be great? No, we don't. We recognize the greatness in Philippe and the lack of greatness in Louis. And so when we hear stories like this, we actually even go further. We tend to identify ourselves as being the Philippe of the story, don't we? And do you want to know the truth? We're not Philippe. We are Louis. Absolutely we are. Make no mistake about it. And yet, like King Louis, we call ourselves great. Maybe not out loud. Sometimes we probably do. But we think of ourselves as being great. But the truth is, we're not so great. If that's the case, and it is, here's the question. Why do we continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we're great when we're actually not? Well, there's lots of reasons, many reasons by which we do that. But ultimately, all of those reasons fall under the main reason, and it's this. We fail to recognize what true greatness comes through. And if we fail to recognize the path to true greatness, we're not going to be great. Just like Louis went down a path that led him to not be great, we too, if we don't recognize the path to true greatness, we're not going to be great. And so if we are going to be truly great, we must recognize what true greatness comes through. And it comes through three, three things, and here they are. True greatness comes through suffering, it comes through service, and finally it comes through sacrifice. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 17, and we're going to go all the way through verse 28. Let's look at 17 through 19 again. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside 
And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. You know, as Americans, when it comes to suffering, we have one rule. And what is it? Avoid it at all costs. Suffering is bad. And why is it bad? Because in our minds, the path to greatness, oh, it don't go down that path. And if it does, it doesn't go down it very long. You get off of that thing immediately, as soon as you can, because suffering doesn't lead to greatness. See, in our society, we view greatness in terms of status. Great career, great house, great health, great looks, great romantic ooh-la-la relationships, great family, great kids who have those great report cards that get them into the great college that get them all the great things that we just mentioned. And you know what? Suffering doesn't line up with that, does it? It doesn't. And so we conclude that suffering must be avoided at all costs. And so there we are, perfectly minding our own business, chasing the American dream and all of the greatness that comes with it. And then what happens? Suffering knocks at our door. And what a jerk. Like, here I was minding my own business, and then suffering shows up at my door and interrupts what I have going on. And so in response to that uninvited guest, we try to shoo them out of the home as quickly as possible, don't we? And so, yes, after a little, you know, nudging and work, we finally get them out of there so we can get on with our lives. But then it isn't much later when we hear another little knock at the door, and then in he comes again, busting it down, being even more irritating than he seemed to be the last time with all those health issues, with all those financial issues, causing all those family strains. And to make matters worse, it doesn't seem like he plans on leaving anytime soon. So what do we do when we start to realize that we are powerless to evict him? We go to somebody who we know who isn't. Someone who has plenty of power to throw him out someone to get this uninvited guest back out onto the streets or maybe into somebody else's house where he belongs. And so what do we do? We get religion. And in America, that defaults to Christianity pretty much. Not as much as it used to, but for the most part, that's what it defaults to. And so maybe we start going to church. Maybe we read our Bibles a little bit. Maybe we start to pray, try to you know, do charitable acts of service. We start doing all the good things that will get God's attention so that he will come into our life just enough to get that uninvited guest out. And lo and behold, what happens? It sort of works. And so we think, wow, this is a good deal. I'm gonna keep up with this bargain. God, you keep my life great and I'll be great at giving you some of the things here and there that you ask for. Just enough religion to keep this bargain in place. So then what happens? Well, there's another knock at the door. And this time, it's more like a police raid as suffering shows up with his friends, breaks the door down, and moves in and sets up shop what seems to be for good. And so then you're upset. And so you go to God upset, complaining that he's not keeping his end of the bargain. And so you start complaining about how things in your life are unfair. Telling God, I don't deserve this difficult marriage. I didn't sign up for this. You were supposed to fix it. We complain how we were treated unjustly at our job and we got fired for something we didn't even do. And here we are, nearly poor and almost destitute. We start complaining about how everyone always seems out to get us, always 
trying to get one up on us, trying to abuse us and take advantage of us, and God doesn't seem to care. And so we go to God complaining and say, God, if you don't start doing the MAGA thing, make all things great again, then I might just have to tear this not-so-great contract up and go and find somebody else who might deliver. But here's the thing. You might want to actually read that contract because if you maybe you did or you didn't, either way, you aren't realizing that there's something in that contract that addresses your situation. Let me show you. Luke 14, 27. Let's look at this contract. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. How about Psalm 119, 71? It is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. Or how about 2 Timothy 3.12? Yes, and everyone who wants to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. One more, 1 Peter 4.1. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. That's just four verses out of about 400 at minimum that speak to how suffering is a part of this contract. It absolutely is. I mean, I was searching, looking through all the different passages. And I was like, all right, I'm only picking four out of all these. There's tons of them. Just look sometime. And why? Why would it be that suffering would be a part of the contract? Is God a bully? Is he a tyrant? No. It's because suffering leads to true greatness. It absolutely does. And if we don't recognize that, you're going to totally lose it when suffering shows up at your doorstep. Let me ask you a question. What makes Navy SEALs the best of the best? Is it because they have the easiest, most cushiest training? No. Is it because they get top-of-the-line food all the time, the best pay, the best living quarters? No. It's because they go through the most difficult of trainings, which could be called, rightly so, suffering. And it's that suffering that produces the greatness in them, which is why when you look at the sign-up list for people who want to be Navy SEALs, they have no lack of people wanting to become the best of the best, the greatest of the greatest. It's not because they're masochists who just like pain. No, it's drawing people who want their pain and suffering to forge them into greatness. And so too, church, is it for us when we approach our suffering with that same attitude, with the right biblical attitude. In fact, if we approach it rightly, the Bible tells us, you know something it tells us? It tells us something remarkable. It tells us that we can experience joy, unspeakable joy. I'm not making this up. Look at Romans 5, 3 through 4. What do we do in our sufferings? Rejoice. But we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because it's, it's just fun to feel pain. We just love it. No, because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. How about James 1, 2 through 4? There's about 50 verses I could give us here. Count it all, what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, that's suffering, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see what these verses are saying? 
Suffering isn't meaningless. Suffering isn't to be avoided at all costs. For suffering is the Christian seal training that produces greatness in us. And yeah, I get it. Of course, it doesn't feel good. Of course, it's going to hurt when you start forging that flab into muscle. Like the first week you go to the gym, you better be careful because you're going to not be able to move for the next three weeks. That's just the way it works. However, we can rejoice in the midst of that pain, knowing that Christ, that in Christ, our suffering is not meaningless. Romans 8, 28, classic verse we say all the time around here. For all things work together for good for those who love God. And let me ask you, does suffering fit into that all things clause? It absolutely does. Do you want to know something remarkable about this? God isn't calling us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. He's not having a double standard here saying, hey, you go suffer while I sit here cushly in heaven and just watch. It's kind of an interesting movie. I'll check it. No. What does verse 17 through 19 tell us that he did? He went up to Jerusalem intentionally. He knew what was there waiting for him. Why? He went there, or what? In order to experience suffering by the hands of evil men, in order to be mocked, flogged, and crucified upon a cross. It's remarkable. The author of life here is embracing death and death on a cross. And why? Hebrews 5, 8 through 10 shed some light on that. Here's what it says. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ went through the ultimate seal training and he did it for a specific reason. Not to make himself so great. He was already great. He did it for us so that he could become the source of eternal greatness to all who come to him. And so here's where the rubber hits the road on this church. No matter what we face, no matter what it is, whether it be a difficult marriage, it be that difficult family relationship with a parent or with a child or a brother or a cousin, whatever, or even difficult life-threatening illness, we know what Romans 8.28 says, that it's true and that all things work together for our good. And because we know this, we can say as the Apostle Paul said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you realize, church, the sufferings of this age, and you will experience them if you haven't, just wait a little bit, that knock's coming. The suffering of this age is but the birth pains to everlasting life. And so, We do not have to love our trials and sufferings. Don't make that mistake. We're not saying, hey, you know what? Just enjoy the pain, love the pain. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we can walk through pain and suffering with joy because we have set our eyes on faith upon the coming eternal glory that far outweighs all of it. And when we've done that, do you know what we can say? We can say what the psalmist said. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Have you embraced the suffering that God has called you to? Do you have a right and biblical attitude about it? Or are you grumbling and complaining the whole time about the contract not being fair? Are you popping spiritual painkillers the second the slightest headache shows up? Well, if so, then know something. You will never be truly great. Because not only does the path to greatness include suffering, but secondly, it includes service. And make no mistake, if you refuse to suffer, you're not going to be good at the service part either. Because serving others always requires suffering, which leads us to our second point. True greatness comes through suffering, but secondly, through service. We just said that service requires suffering. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because that's how it goes, always. For example, if you want to become a great parent with great kids, what do you have to do? You're going to have to serve them in ways that leads to your suffering. For instance, ladies, when you're pregnant, is that just an enjoyable thing the whole way through? Is it just, you know, smiles and roses? No. Morning sickness, headaches, aches and pains, pressure in places you didn't know pressure could happen. And all of that leads to joy. No, not yet. It leads to labor pains, which you experience pain in ways that you didn't even think was humanly possible. Then do we have joy? No, not yet. Not even close. Maybe a little bit, but not yet. Because now you basically have to put your dreams on hold, literally and allegorically, right? Because that baby is going to need to be fed every few hours, which means your dreams are going to have to be literally interrupted and metaphorically interrupted. And if you don't embrace that suffering in order to serve that child, what's going to happen to the child? They're going to die, right? Either either that or the government's going to come take away from you. But the point is, that baby will not thrive without your suffering in order to serve them. And so on it goes, changing diapers, taking time out of your busy day, out of your busy careers to love them, to care for them, to teach them, to answer the same repetitive question over and over and over. I don't know what we're doing tomorrow. We'll figure it out every day. Same question, okay? At minimum, you've got 18 years of suffering service if you want to even get a taste of the real joy of that child growing up into maturity. And here's the thing, the degree to which you actually embrace that reality, that path, that mission, is the degree to which you'll experience true parental joy. If you don't, if you say, no, I'm not sacrificing this for you. I'm not sacrificing my hobbies, my, my joys, my dreams, my aspirations. If you ignore them and are a negligent parent, they're not going to turn out very well, are they? No, they're not, which means that your parental joy, you might have some, but it's going to be diminished big time. One of the worst experiences parents can have is a child where their relationship is in shambles. Do you want a good marriage? Don't kid yourself here either, because if you do, then you better be ready to embrace some suffering in order to have it. How about close friends? Well, is it, they get a free? Is that just all peaches and roses and fluffy bunnies and enjoyable? No, 
It's not either. The same thing is true here. Because if you turn tail and run, whenever somebody crosses you, whenever somebody disappoints you, whenever they don't live up to your expectations, then you're going to be sitting there all alone, never experiencing true, deep, and meaningful relationships. You absolutely won't. All of your relationships are going to only be skin deep. But if you forgive your spouse as many times as Jesus tells you to, was it seven? I can't remember. No, seven times 70, right? If you forgive your friends and family members when they hurt you, which absolutely includes your spiritual family, your church, if you embrace suffering for the sake of serving others, only then will you begin to find relationships in your life that actually mean something. But that's not gonna happen overnight. No more than raising a child happens overnight. And so if you're expecting it to happen overnight, expecting no suffering, you're going to be disappointed. And yet how often do we have this microwave approach to our relationships? This better be ready to serve me in 90 seconds or less or I'm out. That's all the time and effort I have to put into this. So you better be deliver. You better deliver. Yeah? Well, if that's the case then you better get used to TV dinner level quality relationships because that's all you're going to have in a 90-second investment. And yet, how often is that precisely how we view our relationships? Instead of seeing them as an opportunity to serve others, like King Louis, what do we do? We view others as opportunities to serve ourselves. We start to view them like James and John here do in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Now, in verse 21 here, this would be funny if it wasn't so sad, the level of just obliviousness going on with these two. See, Jesus had just finished telling them how he's going to suffer in order to serve them. And what do they do? They go up to mommy. Say, hey, mom, go get get us a good spot. You can do it. Jesus won't say no to you. And so they send mom over to try to do what? To secure great positions of power for them in Christ's kingdom. Look at verse 21, 22. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Okay, I know what you're probably thinking right now. But let me warn you, don't judge them. All right? I'll tell you why in a second. When I was younger, I used to read stories in the Bible where people, where people throughout it basically act like total idiots over and over again. And my thought process as a, as a younger child and even younger adult was, how could they be so dumb? Like, how could you hear Jesus here in this situation saying, I'm going to go suffer, I'm going to go die, I'm going to go die brutally on a cross, and they're like, oh, hey, by the way, can we get a good spot? (laughs) It's incredibly just ridiculous. But you know what I've come to realize now that I'm older? I don't dare think that way, at least not out loud. And why not? Because all of us, especially myself, are just as ridiculous, just as naive as James and John are. We really are. How many times have we either read a passage like this? I mean, we've been looking at greatness for a few weeks now, heard sermons about it, looked at teaching on it, about how true greatness serves others, and then when we get home, what do we do? We have a not-so-great spat with our spouse or with our kids over something ridiculous 
over something having to do with me wanting to be great and to be treated in a way that I think is great. We start to think things like, you know, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't know what this contract is. I don't deserve this at all. And this manifests in a lot of different ways in a church, right? Because so many times there's trivial, menial tasks that need to be done in a church. Like what? Well, we eat a lot. Amen. We're Baptists. We uh, need to clean this building. We need to change light bulbs. We need to do all sorts of things that aren't flashy, that don't even come near this platform unless you're vacuuming it throughout the week. And yet, when we're asked to do some of these unglamorous ministries, what do we do? Oh, I just don't have time for that. When the truth is, we think we're just too great for that. Don't get me wrong. We aren't supposed to do all things. But here's the thing. If we're not doing any ministries that are lowly, if all the ministries we gravitate towards are the flashy ones, does that say something? I think it does. And I think what it says is that we think we are right-hand or at minimum left-hand people when it comes to Christ's kingdom. If we are honest, we often get this Louis-like self-serving attitude. And not only that, and here's what's ironic about it, when we see it in others, how do we tend to respond? Even when we just did it five seconds ago, we respond like the disciples, who it says here were indignant. They they were indignant towards James and John. And this was not righteous indignation. This was not holy zeal. What was this? They're mad because they didn't think of it first. Like, you're trying to get to the front of the line here. What do you think you're doing? And so in response to this, Jesus calls them over patiently and kindly. He doesn't say to James and John, hey, you need to listen to these disciples. You're way out of line. No, he says, hey, all you disciples, come here. I got to teach you something. Look at verse 25 through 27. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. As we've come to see now throughout these past two chapters, in Christ's kingdom, the way up is down and the way down is up. For true greatness embraces lowly suffering in order to serve others. And it does so knowing that this always comes with sacrifice. It does. Every time, if you're going to go down and be lowly and serve others, it's going to require sacrifice, which leads us to our final point. True greatness comes through suffering, through service, and lastly, through sacrifice. In response to James and John's question, what does Jesus say to him here? Does he chew him out? Does he respond with an irate and upset manner? In verse 25, he says, guys, you don't know what you're asking. You just love that? He doesn't respond indignantly. He doesn't respond in anger. He's just like, hey, James, John, you don't know what you're asking. And why don't they know what they're asking? Because they don't know of the cup that Jesus is going to drink. In verses 18 through 19, they already told us a bit about that cup. But again, Jesus tells us what it is again in verse 28, where he says, speaking of this cup, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is this cup? What is he speaking of? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New, the cup 
is God's wrath. It's the anger of God, the wrath of God being poured out upon sinners. And Christ is saying, I'm going to drink that cup. And this was no light ordeal. In fact, before he went to the cross, what did he do in the garden? He sweat droplets of blood. I mean, it almost killed him when he gazed. And okay, so when he was in that garden, he was not, oh man, this cross is awful. And it was. But a lot of people suffered deaths and martyrdoms worse than Jesus did, didn't they? Absolutely they did. However, Jesus's was the worst. Why? Because he drank the cup of wrath. The wrath of God was poured about poured out upon him. And in the garden, he looked forward into time. He saw the wrath of God. He saw the cup that he would drink and he trembled. It nearly killed him. His body started falling apart. His blood started coming out of his pores. And why did he drink this cup? He did it in order to suffer for the purpose of serving us so that he could become our perfect and final sacrifice. And because he did, He holds the greatest place of them all as God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, the name by which all will bow, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of this because he suffered in order to serve as the sacrifice for humanity. Don't you see now why suffering, service and sacrifice leads to true greatness? Because Christ pioneered that path for us. And make no mistake, that's the only path to true greatness. For if you refuse that path, if you do not go down that path, you're going to result not in greatness, but in great suffering and destruction in the eternal wrath of God for all of eternity. Make no mistake about it, the path to the crown always goes through the cross. And if Christ couldn't bypass it, neither can we. Yes, it's different, but in a way it's not because we still face suffering. James and John tried to bypass the cross, didn't they? They hear Jesus talking about this cross. We're going to Jerusalem. That doesn't sound good. And they say, hmm, can we just skip that? Can we just rule and reign? Put us at your right and left? That sounds, that sounds way better. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. For the way to the crown always goes through the cross. And on Jesus' path to the crown, do you remember who was actually at his right hand and his left hand? People being crucified. It's like, you sure you guys want that? You can, you're going to take that cup with me? They're like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll take it. <laughs> How naive. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus said, you will drink a cup. You will drink some of the wrath. And, they, and indeed, they did. We know James, though he didn't die on the cross next to Christ, he was brutally martyred. martyred. And John was persecuted and tortured. But is that where it ended for them? No. For though they participated in that cup, like Jesus, they too will wear a crown. For these faithful disciples, Scripture tells us, will one day rule and reign in Christ's kingdom with their names being on the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city which comes down in Revelation. It's remarkable. And in that kingdom, they are going to be amongst the first. They will be great. Not because they were famous, not because they were rich, not because they were powerful, not because they were great by the world's standards, but because they understood that true greatness comes through suffering, through service, and through sacrifice. For that is the way of our Savior. 
Jesus Christ who pioneered the path to greatness for us. And it is only through him that the weak become strong. It saddens me how many people misunderstand the true nature of Christianity. They think that Christianity is primarily about us sacrificing for God, but is it? No, it's not. For Christianity, unlike all of the other religions, fundamentally at its core is God sacrificing for us. That's what it is. And when you see that, the degree to which you see that will change your life. For some of you, you have an intellectual, basic, superficial understanding of what the gospel actually means. It's because the penny hasn't dropped. You haven't come to see that the path to greatness is the same path in a way that Jesus went down. And so you're trying to avoid suffering. You're trying to serve only on your terms. And when it comes to sacrifice, well, you might, but it's going to be little tiny things. Because the path to greatness for you is not the same path that Christ went down. The essence of Christianity isn't us sacrificing for God. It's God sacrificing for us. And when we see that, when we see the lengths that he was willing to go in order to suffer for the purpose of serving us to save us, it's going to change us. It's going to change the way we view suffering, service, and sacrifice. In fact, if we understand this, and we follow Christ down that path of true greatness, one day we will look back and we will realize that whatever we sacrificed was no sacrifice at all. Not really. At least not compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. The eternal weight of glory that we will receive when we receive our heavenly crown. First Peter 1, 6-7 talks about this. Here's what it says. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's suffering. So that the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? In this life right now? No. At the revelation of Christ Jesus. Church, Christ is coming. And so the question I have for you, is he your hope? Is he your crown? If so, then take hope in knowing that your suffering, your sacrifice, and your service is leading to a crown that will surely not pass away. Father, we thank you for the suffering of Jesus, which was necessary in order to serve us as he came to be the final and perfect sacrifice. Father, I pray for the one here today who has not come to understand what the cross actually means in terms of who they are and whom they can be in the shadow of the cross. So, Father, I pray for the person here today who the penny hasn't dropped. They haven't come to fully realize the truth of the gospel. They have a superficial, lighthearted understanding of it. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, I pray for Christians here today who though they have come to embrace the gospel, their hearts are prone to wander and prone to forget it. For our hearts are. And so, Father, I just pray that by your power, through your grace, that you empower us to boldly march forward down the path of suffering as we proclaim the gospel, as we proclaim the suffering of Jesus, where he came to serve and sacrifice in order to make us great with him.
Father, help us as a church to reach out to the lost. Help us to serve one another. Help us to show people glimpses of true greatness, which is found only in Christ. Help us to do so for your glory and your people's good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.